Today's message is entitled, Wake Up to a Grander Vision. And as I draw your attention to the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you, let me just say a couple thoughts. We do not want to remain where we are at. You say, well, Lance, actually, I kind of do. I don't like change. Change is miserable. Change is awkward. All right, let me motivate you by this. What if we have a conversation three years from now? And I say to you, hey, so how you been growing these last three years? You go, "Ah, I'm about the same. That's not acceptable. That should horrify you. That is not success of walking with Jesus. Here's why. When you got saved, when Jesus Christ came into your life, when he gave you a new heart, he imparted the Holy Spirit within you. The Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance to come. When he indwells you, he is moving you to change. He's convicting you of sin. He's guiding you into truth. He's the one breaking the power of sin in your life. In other words, God will make you grow. You actually have to crush it. So if we're not growing, we're crushing the growth pattern that God has in us. He will catalyze you to transform if we quench him if we shut him down if we resist him if we rebel against him yes we will remain the same or slide backwards and i would hope that as much as change is uncomfortable i would hope that remaining the same is even worse so i pray that we move forward praise god the fill in the blank is true it is this God is not content to leave you as you are. God is not content to leave you as you are. As we engage into this book of Isaiah, I continue to warn you that it is highly encouraging and highly challenging. And I need you to balance those things. I need you to balance challenge where you need to be convicted. And I want you to understand, embrace, and soak in the encouragement and the hope and the future and the grace that you will see there. Um, Some of us, when we engage with this, we have hard hearts. Um, I have an opportunity to meet with a lot of pastors in the area. One that I have a very special connection with, a bond with, is a gentleman that I mentor, and it's Pastor Ryan McDiarmid of the church right down the road. Okay, Creekside Church, you guys, when we turn in, you see their sign. Uh, I, I mentor Ryan, and so we meet all the time. He was putting together some discipleship materials, and they're absolutely brilliant. And he asked me to look over them and help him edit them and kind of take a look at them. And he said something that just caught me. He said, when we resist God, there are really two major kinds of hard hearts. He said, there is the proud heart, one that says, I'm not that bad, it's not my fault, it's no big deal. The second kind is the despairing heart. It says, it's all my fault, I'm way too bad, I'm so much worse than everybody else. Both of those are hard. So much we think that, well, I'm not being resistant because I I feel terrible about myself. If you allow the enemy to make you prideful, you lose. If you allow the enemy to tear you down and despair, you lose. We cannot overestimate or underestimate ourselves. We must keep a clear view of who God is, who we are, and who we are in relation to him. 
What I'm asking for is that you would listen to the heart of Isaiah as the Holy Spirit spoke through him. I'm asking you would keep your heart soft and listen to both the conviction and the encouragement. All right. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter two, verse one. I'm going to throw up a map here on the screen. Uh, just because we are so dismal at geography, I thought I'd throw up a map to give you kind of an idea on where we are in the world. Some of you are just joining us. As you look on this, I don't have my super pointer. I feel bad about that. I know it's kind of like my, my one toy I get to play with. Um, you'll notice that at the bottom of the screen, you got the top of Africa, you know, Europe up top and you go Italy. Yay. I know that it looks like a boot, right? And then there's Greece and Turkey. Well, over on the right hand side, it has Jerusalem with a star. That is the area of Israel. We're going to zoom into that on the next page there. We're going to leave this one up. This is all you need to know as I'm As I'm reading this beginning portion, we're going to be focusing in on Israel. And at this time, uh, when Isaiah ministered over possibly 58-year ministry, he was ministering in the south. After Solomon, the nation of Israel split in two. There was a north and a south. Israel was the north. Judah was the south. Judah's capital was Jerusalem. That is where Isaiah did the majority of his ministry. He will reflect on stuff that happens in the north, but he will talk a lot about stuff in the south. All right. But the other thing that we need to understand is that when the Old Testament prophets saw things from God, they did not know the details on how it was all going to work out. They just told you what they saw and what they saw in general was this. God's going to make it right. It's going to go through chaos and judgment and all kinds of hardcore stuff, but God will make it right. What that looks like is they look forward and they saw that God would bring about judgment on his people, bring about a Messiah, and that Messiah would set up a kingdom, wrap up the world, and make it peaceful again. They had no idea that it was going to be over a period of thousands of years. They did not know that the Messiah was going to arrive And then there was going to be a pause time and then he was going to come again. They didn't understand all that. So when you read Old Testament prophecy, they mix it all together. They keep talking about the time when the Messiah is going to come and set up his kingdom. Will that time come? Absolutely. But they didn't know that there was a pause in between. When we read Isaiah, he will have visions not only concerning his time, But a hundred years forward when the south gets lost and moving forward to when the Messiah shows up the first time and visions of what happens when the world wraps up, Jesus Christ comes, sets up the millennial kingdom and the world is made right. All of that is wrapped up together in his prophecies. So what we're going to do along the way is kind of sift through and see what we can find. Isaiah chapter two, I'm just going to read Uh, the first five verses, and then we'll pray for the word. It says this, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say come let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths 
For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we open up our hearts and our souls and our spirits to drink in what you would give us. Father, our hearts are resistant. We're scared half the time. We're arrogant the other half of the time. Father, massage our hearts that your seed of the beautiful word that you've given us would fall upon appropriate soil. That within us, you would raise up a harvest. God, make us change like you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going through four chapters of Isaiah. You ready to go? Let's do this. I went long on one chapter last week. You're in trouble. So let's go back to verse one. The way this series is going to go is that every new point I'm going to include with Isaiah, but any time that he's going to be redundant or repeat himself, I'm going to paraphrase for you. That allows us to move forward a little bit more rapidly in one of the longest books in the entire Bible. We begin in verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, that's the south, it shall come to pass in latter days. When are those days? We do not know. Some of it is fulfilled at this point. Some of it is fulfilled at that point. Some is still yet to come. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills. What is he talking about? In that specific verse, he's referring to Jerusalem, more specifically the temple. The temple was originally built as a basically a housing so that God's spirit could come and dwell with man. It's kind of like their church. Who built it? Anybody remember who built the first temple? Solomon. That was King David's son. We know King David, the giant slayer, the greatest king other than Jesus, right on the throne of Israel. His son was called to build the church. David wanted to build it and God said no. Solomon built this incredibly stunning, beautiful temple upon Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah was a place where Abraham sacrificed his son Isaac. So it has this rich history. Is it a super high mountain? No, not really. As a matter of fact, it's become a rather famous site where this temple was. Now it is merely known as the Temple Mount. If you go over to Jerusalem today, or if you look at any pictures, now you will see the Dome on the Rock, which is up on top. It's a big domed gold building. It is now Muslim occupied. It is Muslim controlled. Again, the Jews are not allowed to go there. They are cast out. They only have access to one wall of the foundation of where the temple used to be. That wall has become famous and known as the Wailing Wall. That's where they place their prayers about the restoration of Israel. That's why it's such a big deal. Now, with all this going on, you would wonder whether or not they're going to have despair, right? That they were kicked out because it says, I'll restore you, but they're looking around and they don't see access. The question is whether or not God is faithful. God is indeed faithful. We know that. He is true to his word. So look at that first phrase. It shall come to pass. God will make it happen because he is true to what he says. 
Nothing can stand in his way. And he will make it that all nations will be drawn there to seek God's face. How in the world is that going to happen? People don't even like Israel right now. How can you ever imagine a time where the nations are all going to flood in and want to know about the great God of Israel? Well, that's when the Messiah reigns, when Jesus comes back, when Jesus sets up his mighty throne and begins to change the world, when things become right again. It says, and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the great God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He, the Messiah, shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into agricultural instruments. They will go from weapons of war to weapons of harvest, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Here's what you need to see about that passage. God's judgment, God's discipline is always purposeful. I know a lot of us, when we read stuff in the Bible about God, we have a hard time not relating it to our parents or how we were raised. Some of us were raised in abusive environments where we had someone that would vent their full anger. It was not for our benefit. It was for them to tear down so they could feel better about themselves. That is not God. Our God does not need to vent on us. Our God does things for a purpose. The difference between judgment and discipline is judgment is for the enemies of God. Discipline is for the children of God. Either way, it's purposeful. It's heading towards a direction. The reason why that's important to us is that if God blows up your life in discipline... He's not going to abandon you and discard you and say, I don't want to deal with you anymore. God has more patience than you have rebellion. God knows what you're doing. God knows what your faults are. God knows what your heart is doing. And so he will bring in discipline, but he's not interested in leaving you as a heap of pain on the floor. Even in the midst of chapter one, we read chapter one in Isaiah, it's brutal. It was, you know, raining down judgment. Immediately after that, chapter 2 begins with, but I'm going somewhere. This is not just pain for pain. That's not what God does. He's heading, he's hurtling towards a bright future for his kids. If you are a child of God today, meaning you have Jesus Christ in your life, I can guarantee you this. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You are God's masterpiece, even though he will wreck you at times. It is for the purpose of purification. It is for the purpose of moving you towards him. He will get you home. And I just know that so many of us go, God, you're just blowing up my life, and I feel totally abandoned, and I feel like nothing good ever happens. And there is no room for despair in the heart of a believer. Because he knows what he's doing. Do you ever dream about what it would be like as if we were really sold out for God? Do you ever do? It's a total Christian nerd thing. 
Do you guys ever do that? Here's how, here's how I kind of dream. And I was even dreaming. I, was, I mentioned it last night, and I was dreaming about it this morning. Imagine if we lived like Jesus, right? One of the things that Jesus did when he came down here was to give us an example on how our lives should live. Imagine that every morning we get up early in the morning and we get a download from our Heavenly Father on what we're supposed to do that day. Imagine that in your prayer time, you literally, through his word, through prayer, who knows whether or not God wants to talk audibly to you, whatever it is, he gives you a vision, maybe he's just sitting there conveying to you and all these thoughts are flooding in your mind, you're writing them down, you get a download from your heavenly father in the morning on what your marching orders are that day. You have divine appointments throughout the day, you're meeting with people, when you're getting gas, you look over and you see somebody and the Holy Spirit goes, that guy right there, I need you to talk to him. And then you're like, how you doing man, you okay, well you know what, I'm having a hard time, hey can I pray for you? Well, okay, that's kind of weird, but all right. You pray for him. He starts crying because he knows that God loves him. And then that lady over there, he goes, hey, I love her so much. Can you go tell her that I love her? You do all this throughout the day. You're in your cubicle. You're commuting from home, whatever it is. And God is just having you transform the world. You go to bed exhausted with joy. You refresh all night long, you wake up with expectation and anticipation, get a new download of your marching orders, and it starts all over again. And every day matters. Do you ever dream of that stuff? I do. That's what I want my life to be like. Did you notice the last line that I read there? Oh, house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. It means if we know where we're headed... Do we really need to wait for judgment to hit to get there? Why can't we submit now? Do we really need God to blow us up just so he gets our attention? Why can't we be soft in his hands now? Why can't we say, yes, Jesus, I want to be what you want me to be. I don't want to resist. I don't want to sit there and go, well, you know what? I'll think about it. No, you're not going to think about it. What about right now? You say, God, I want all you all right now. I don't want to be in charge anymore. Does he really have to bring discipline? Well, Israel didn't think so. They didn't think they were going to soften up. They thought that it was old news. And so, verse 6, for you have rejected your people. God has rejected his people. You mean like forever? No, that's not his nature. Temporarily, and he is withholding his favor and blessing. You go, well, that's mean. No, it's not. Let me ask you a question. If you've got a spoiled brat of a kid, how do you re-rack him? Stop giving him stuff. And if he's being a punk, take away the stuff he has. Right? That's what good parents do. Therefore, we have our Heavenly Father going, you are a spoiled brat. I'm taking your stuff away. Because we're not doing that anymore. You have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, meaning all of Israel. Why? Because they're full of compromise and the idolatry all around them has influenced them. He said, verse 7, their land is filled with silver and gold. There's no end to their treasure. Why? Because for a hundred years now, Judah had relative peace. They were getting fat on the land. They were, they were able to amass all kinds of wealth. Their security was getting high. They were the generation that was raised where everything was going awesome. That was my generation until the recession. 
when I, all the folks that I grew up with, our was always up to the right. Everything was going well. You'd always get a better job. Everything was advancing. Housing market was moving forward. All that was happening and then it all stopped. But you know what? If you ever talk to somebody from the depression era, how did they act towards it? They've already been there, done that. They're like, trust me, it ain't always like that kid. I get it. Well, you know what? This generation in Israel didn't get it. They thought everything was always going to go great. So they amassed for themselves. Their land is filled with horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. You know how stupid idolatry is? You bow down to something you made. If you made it, it's not that awesome. (laughs) What are you going to do about your afterlife? You got any control on that? Nope. Why? You're limited. Why are you trusting in something you can create, you can build? And it's funny because we look at this and we go, well, that's a really dumb idea that they would go over and they'd beat up another nation, take their idols and put them in their house. You go, yeah, that is dumb. So why are we doing it every day? We say in here, the world's got nothing for me. They don't know the truth, blah, blah, blah. And yet we duplicate everything they do and we take their stuff into our houses. What? How's that going to work out? We buy all the same books they buy. Here's how you're successful. Here's how you're successful. Here's how you're successful. When are we going to learn that there's actually a book we should read, the one that we're not reading, and it talks about how to be successful in the eyes of God. But no, we have to continue to grab the idols of the world, put them into our life, and then we go, I don't know why it's not working. I don't know. So man is humbled. Each one is brought low. God, do not forgive them. God, if you just forgive them and let it go, they're going to go right back to it. Isaiah knew what he was talking about. God said, you know what, Isaiah, let me give you an idea. Here's what it's going to look like when I show up. I think they need a little more fear of the Lord, yeah? Verse 10. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust in fear and shame from before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of man shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the warrior God, the Lord of hosts, has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. He said, I will wreck the proudest people. I will wreck the proudest lands. I will come against their security, against their trade. And you know what? When I'm done with you, you'll eventually throw your little gods away. But it may be too late. Verse 22. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Stop being selfish and stop looking to other people. They don't have the answer. Stop trying to Google your answers and start praying. Stop trying to figure everything out by the success section and start looking in the Christ section. Do you understand there's one sin that he will just absolutely assault in this book? Are you tracking on it yet? You know what it is? Because it never seems to factor in any Christian's list of the worst sins. What is it? Pride. You want to make God throw up? Be proud. He says in the word, I hate it. It's abhorrent to me. It's an abomination to me. Don't be arrogant. You're trying to compete with me. Stop competing with me. You keep making yourself out to be a God, and I'm not going to allow that to happen. Don't do it. Do you realize that the very same sin that took Lucifer to make him Satan 
is the sin we engage with. And yet all the Christians have their little lists of problems. Oh my gosh, that sin is so bad. And this sin is so bad. And I can't believe that person did that. And oh my gosh, right? And we just sit there and talk about everyone in church and oh, that person's wicked. And what about that? Look at that girl's wearing and blah, 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 blah. Right? And the whole time pride dwells securely in our hearts. God never said that what she wears makes him want to throw up, but the way that you think, that'll get him. For behold, chapter 3, 1. For behold, the Lord God of hosts, the warrior God, is taking away from Jerusalem, from Judah, support and supply. Once again, how do you correct a spoiled kid? Take his stuff away. Bread, water, army, judges, leaders, counselors, magicians... When I take that away, the nation will fall apart. He will replace their leaders with foolishness and they'll scramble to stay afloat. Verse eight for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. Does that have any relation to us? Has our society at all shut God out? When asked the other day from another person being interviewed, they use this famous phrase back, and there's some caveats to it, but I need you to understand the power of it. That the world would dare ask this, in the Connecticut massacre, where was God? You know what? I'm going to tell you God was there. Here's the second thing I'm going to tell you. You have no right to ask me that, because you told him to leave. Do not Ask me where God is when you consistently tell him not to show. You say you don't want anything to do with him. You tell him that you have no room for him. You tell him that he's an irritant to you. You tell him that he has no business being in your life, being in your society. You tell him that he's cramping your style. You're telling him at all times that he bugs you. And then you dare to say, where is he when I want him? That type of arrogance doesn't play. You know what? He was there, but not because of you. He was there because of his grace and his mercy. But don't ever ask me where God was during that hard time when you asked him to leave. For the look on their faces bears witness against them, verse 9. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They don't even hide it. Is there anybody in our society that flaunts arrogance to where you can read it on their face? I'm sorry, is there anyone in society that doesn't? <laughs> well, it's them, for they have brought evil on themselves. The one step beyond pride is arrogance, and that's when it goes public. Verse 10, check this out. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. But woe to the wicked, it will be ill for them, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. You want to, want to hear an insight on what I'm praying about revival in our land? Let's say revival comes in two and a half, three years. There's some indicators that it will. My personal tracking system right now is that God's going to wreck us in society. If that happens, here's my prayer. And this is what I've been praying through these 40 days. God, make it like the Egypt scenario. Make it so when you rain down on Egypt... You protect your Hebrew people. When you come, like the angel of death sweeping through, would you pass over the ones that have the blood of Jesus on the door to their hearts? Now, is that selfish of me? Totally. I don't want to be blown up. 
right? And I'm saying, Lord, for all those whose hearts are humble, for all those who pursue you, who all those are for our good, would you protect us? Would you allow the darkness to be over one area and the light to be over another? Would you allow us to be safe? And to some degree, I guess the other side of my mind says, if he's going to do that, then he's probably going to need to purify his kids for the next three years because he's going to clean up at home first. When he wrecks the world, he needs them to run into the arms of the righteous. We are not that. And so I wonder how much work he has to do in us to prepare us so that when he does shake up the world, we can remain immovable. The Lord will enter into judgment, verse 14, with the elders and princes of his people. The Lord will deal with leadership. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. You're the ones that ruined everything. The spoil of the poor is in your house. What do you mean by crushing my people, grinding the faces of the poor? Who do you think you are, declares the warrior God. Israel had a, war, had a leadership problem. America has a leadership problem. But you know what? God is a defender God. He's not just going to let things continue unless it's according to his will. I don't want America to get destroyed. I want us to go right. I want us to understand what God wants. I want revival to come upon our land. We're only a few hundred years old, and already we're facing this idea of removing God to the degree we're going to draw his fire. Why can't we rise up? And say, God, we want it like you want it. Where are our leadership? The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion, meaning Judah and Israel, are haughty, because they're arrogant and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, trying to allure people, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. You know what that means? It meant that the ladies back in the day, they would wear bells on their ankles so you couldn't ignore them. When they walk into a room, it was like, jingle, 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 right? And it was just like, I'm here. Check out my new outfit, right? That's what it was. And he said, because of that whole outstretched neck, you got your nose in the air, you think you're all that. He said, look at the next phrase. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion. And the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. I will embarrass you. I will put not only disease on you, I will make you unclean and I will reject you. I will take away everything that you parade around in and I will use it to bring you into captivity. You like that necklace? Good, because now it's a chain around your neck. You like that tattoo? That's interesting because now you're branded as a slave. Chapter 4, verse 1. In that day. What day? Probably the millennial day. Probably future. The branch of the Lord meaning the Messiah and all that is true Israel in his train shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who's left in Zion, in Jerusalem, and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, there are names written in the Lamb's book of life, being allowed to survive through the difficult time, purified. 
When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. When he's done purifying, verse 5, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and a shining of flaming fire by night. What does that sound like? Sounds like the Exodus, yeah? Remember when, they, when he broke them out of Egypt, rained down plague and fire on the enemy, and they came out and he would have his presence right there guiding them, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He said, I will, when I'm done with you, when I purify my people, I will be in their midst. I will lead them. I will guide them. It will be beautiful and glorious. And over all her glory, there will be a canopy of protection and love. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. What an amazing, stunning vision. What is God doing with his judgment and discipline? Creating something beautiful. What is he doing in the wrecking of your life and the re-racking and the conviction and the getting on your case and the spinning you in your mind? He's making something beautiful in you. It is not okay. I know you're okay with the way you're at. But Jesus knows how beautiful you will be. And he's not okay leaving you there. He knows your potential. He built it in you. And so he'll keep you going. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song. If that is indeed Isaiah talking to God, it is the most romantic, personal phrase to God in the entire Old Testament. He said, you want to talk about the one I'm madly in love with? That's my God. I want to sing a song about him. I want to tell you a parable. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved God had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. That's Israel set up to succeed. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He prepared the way for them. He planted it with choice vines. He loaded them with potential. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, a holy city with a temple to be his light. He hewed out a wine vat in it so he could receive glory from that city. He looked to it to yield grapes, righteous things, righteous acts, but it yielded wild grapes, useless, tasteless things. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and your vineyard. Let's take a look on trial. What happened here? What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Answer me that. What more do you want me to do? I have taken Israel. I made them into a people. I blessed them with my presence. I gave them blessing upon their land. I told them that I love them. I shielded them in protection from their enemies. I gave them a king, one that would listen to me. I gave them prophets that would speak for me. I gave them my word, my law. I told them what was in my heart. I came and spoke wonderfully to them and they walked away. What more do you want from me? Why do you reject me? I'm not following this. So do we have any tie-ins to us? Yeah, here's how it looks like for our lives. I rescued you on the cross. I reached down into the muck and the mire and I drew you out. I sent my son because I love you so much that he would die for you. 
that he took all the penalties and wrath of eternal hell upon him that you would never have to. I rescued you. I gave you a new heart. I gave you my Holy Spirit. I dwell within you. You are now a living temple walking around through there. I whisper words of comfort. I whisper words of encouragement. I protected you from your enemies and you do nothing. I look for fruit in your life. I look for what are you doing to build the kingdom? What are we doing out here? How are you walking with me? And no, it's all about you. I got nothing from you. Why? What do you want me to do? Well, you want me to give you all the perverted desires of your heart that are going to hurt you? Is that what you want from me? Because I'm not doing that. Now I'll tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. Verse 5. I'll remove its protection. And it will be devoured. Verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Woe to the greedy and the selfish that move their boundary markers to steal other people's land because they have more money. You know what? That land in Israel is my land, God said. I gave it to my families. You don't have a right to steal it. Stop with the greed. Woe to those who are drunkards because all your alcoholism shows is that you're selfish, that it's all about you. I can't even use you for my kingdom because you can't even see me anymore. You're not thinking my thoughts. You're thinking about how do I feel better? How do I cleanse the, how do I push away my sin? How do I push away my pain? How do I, you're always blanketing everything and it's always about you. Therefore, my people will go into exile, verse 13, for lack of knowledge. You go, well, that's rude. Why is he going to bust them for something they don't know? He's not. He's busting them for what they refuse to know. Their honored men go hungry. Their multitude is parched with thirst. Do you know why? Because without God, there's no satisfaction. He goes, you want satisfaction? It's right here in my pocket. You want to come over? Come here. You get near me, I'll give you satisfaction. You try to run away from me, all you have is insatiable appetite. Never enough, never enough, never enough. Craving, 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 craving. That's all I'm going to give to the world. I am not giving you satisfaction because satisfaction will be found only in me. You know who else is hungry? The grave. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down. Her revelers and he who exults in her. Man is humbled, each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. The holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and the nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. When God purifies out, there will be satisfaction and peace. You want that in your life? Because there's a lot of the pain and frustration and insatiable appetite that we have every day because of our sin. Let God root it out. And a blanket of peace will descend. Woe to those who cheat and look for evil. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who think they know it all. Woe to the champions of drinking and mixing liquor. Woe to the corrupt who harm the innocent for a buck. What do you want me to do? You want me to sit back and let you hurt each other? Or do you want me to fix it? I'll fix it. 
Therefore, God will strike his people. Verse 26, he shall raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come, bent on destruction. Assyria, Babylon, get up here. I will bless you for a time. I want you to take my family out. Here they come riding. Nasty, mean, vicious people. The Assyrians were known for ferocity, for doing horrible, terrible things, psych operations, where they would destroy and put people on sticks just to scare the living daylights out of everybody. And God said, Satan has so filled their heart of violence. You know what? Here's the deal. Protection is off. Go. And they ride in and start devastating. When the purification process is done, God's hand comes out and goes, that's enough. By the way, you, I'm taking you out. You're done here. Babylon, get up. Take them out, good, you're done. Why? Because it's all purposeful. Listen, the bottom line to this whole message is this. God will go to extreme lengths to reach his people. He will do things you never even imagined. The wake-up series is getting your mind wrapped around that. That God will get you moving forward somehow, some way. He will use things that are brutal. He will use things that are gentle. He will use things that are loving. He will use things that are vicious. He will get your attention. He will move you forward. He will grab our society. America can only reject God so long. Either we have revival or we have judgment. Those are the only two outcomes for our country. And I ask you this. Can God use us? Or are we going to continue to resist until we got to get blown up too? Let me close in prayer and I'll give you the final challenge. Heavenly Father, we offer up this time to you that, Lord, may we learn from Israel's mistakes, God, because we're making the exact same mistakes in our lives right now. But, Lord, I know that it's purposeful. I know that you're correcting us. I know you're bringing about a glorious future. I know, Holy Spirit, that you dwell within us and you're trying to make beauty. You're trying to make gold and we keep throwing mud on the canvas. God, would you clean off the mud and continue your beautiful design in each and every one of us. That, Lord, that we would humble ourselves before you, that we would lift you up and make you the rightful king on the throne. God, make it here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The closing challenge this week is this. Where have you compromised God's vision for your own comfort and security? List it out. Tell somebody else. Ask them to partner with you for your change. Amen?